Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Father Andrew Mattingly. I am a Catholic priest in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is a podcast where I post homilies and random other stuff that I might teach or speak about. Hope you find something useful and maybe even inspiring. God bless you. So today is the first Sunday of October, and if you recall, on the first Sunday of September, I had mentioned that the bishop is requiring all the priests for the first Sunday of the month, between now and next June, to preach about the Holy Eucharist as, as a conclusion to the three-year Eucharistic revival going on in the U.S. And so I decided that I would preach for basically nine months straight on the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist. So some of you perhaps might be familiar with the fact that when we talk about the Holy Eucharist and we talk about the different aspects of this greatest sacrament, one easy way to break it down is is the three primary aspects or significations of the Holy Eucharist. Number one, that it is the the sacrament of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Number two, that it is the sacrament of Jesus's real presence, that he remains with us in the Eucharist. We talk about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And number three, that it is the sacrament of Holy Communion. It's the sacrament where we actually consume our Lord and deepen our communion with him uh, in that way. I think for many Catholics, they're slightly more familiar with those last two uh, aspects of the Eucharist, the Eucharist as uh, the real presence and the Eucharist as communion, but the Eucharist as sacrifice is perhaps a little more murky or vague. So I wanted to kind of break that down over, over nine months. And if you're here last month, you might recall that I, I zoomed way back historically and just talked about the nature of sacrifice as an act of the virtue of religion. Not even, we're not even talking here about Jewish religion or Christianity, but just as an act of religion in general. So if you weren't here, you're welcome to go back on our website and, and click homilies and, and listen to last month's if you want kind of the precursor to this. I'm not going to try and recap it uh, this morning. Uh, Today I want to talk about the different types of sacrifice in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. So at different points in the Old Covenant, God spoke to his people, the Israelites, and asked them, or commanded them, to perform different types of sacrifices. And I want to explain the five main types of sacrifice that we find in the Old Testament, and how Jesus, and in particular the Holy Eucharist, fulfills all five of these types of sacrifice that you find in the Old Testament. Now, I'll tell you, these these five are laid out in very great detail, primarily in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. Now, many, many people, if they sit down to try and read the Bible cover to cover at some point, Leviticus is typically the book where they, where they stop. <laughs> 
or they just kind of skip past it. You know, it starts talking about all these different types of animal sacrifices and you know, how they function and different feast days and yada yada and people sort of get lost. But these are very important things to understand because all of them have details about them that point to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and point to the Holy Eucharist as the sacrament of that sacrifice. So it's very helpful to, to understand them. So of these five types of sacrifice in the Old Covenant, the first two we can kind of group together and say that they are sacrifices that were meant to restore someone's relationship with God when it had been broken in some way. You, you would have an Israelite who had transgressed the law of Moses in some way. This could be something they did that was deliberate, a deliberate violation of a ritual law or a moral law, or it could be something that was accidental, right? There were so many laws of ritual purity and so on to remind the Israelites that God was sovereign, that he was supreme, and to remind them that they're creatures, something that all of us in our culture today desperately need to be reminded of, that we're not our own masters, we're not our own gods. So there are all these ritual laws, and sometimes, you know, Israelites would break them on accident, but even then, as a reminder that they needed to remember the sovereignty and majesty of God, they would have to bring a sacrifice to the temple to atone for that breach of the Mosaic law. And these two kinds of sacrifices are called sin offerings and guilt offerings. Scholars debate the exact difference between the two. I'm not going to go into that here. But you have these two different types of offerings, sin offerings and guilt offerings. And they would be offered to atone for a breach or a transgression of the Mosaic law. What did they look like? Well, it depends on uh, the particular societal class you were in. Um, that would, yeah, whatever societal class you're in would determine the type of animal that you brought for a sin or a guilt offering. So if you were a priest, you had to bring a bull, right? Something particularly valuable. If there was some sort of breach of the Mosaic law on, that was uh, done by the entire Israelite people as a whole, there also had to be the sacrifice of a bull, if you were uh, a secular ruler of some kind, you were a king or a magistrate, you would have to bring a male goat. And if you were just a lay Israelite, you had to bring a female goat or a female sheep. So you would bring this animal to the temple in Jerusalem, and the animal would be killed, and its blood would be drained into a basin, and then the animal would be cut up and placed on what was called the altar of burnt offering, and then half of it, specifically the fat and the entrails, that part would be burned as an offering of atonement to God, and the meat of the animal would be eaten by the priests. So remember that at this time, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites, functioned as the priests. They ministered in the temple day in and day out, and because they didn't have the ability to basically produce food for themselves, they didn't work the land, it was the responsibility of the other 11 tribes to provide for their needs. So sort of half of many of these sacrifices would be the food, the sustenance of the priests. And that's the case with the sin and the guilt offering. So you'd bring your, you'd bring your bull or your goat or your sheep 
Um, and it would be sacrificed, the blood poured into a basin, half burned on the altar, half given to the priest. And then the basin of blood would be, you'd do some other things with it too, but uh, the primary thing is that the blood would be poured out at the base of the altar. This big basin of blood would just be poured out at the base of the altar. How does Christ fulfill these sin and guilt offerings? Well, the primary way that he does this, of course, is that Jesus on the cross, what did he do? He poured out his blood at the base of the altar of the cross. We talk about the cross as, an, as the altar on which the sacrificial victim died, Jesus. He poured out his blood at the base of that altar, just as the blood of these animals was poured out at the base of the altar in the temple in the Old Covenant. However, different from the blood of those animals, which were not efficacious, they actually did not remove the guilt or the sin of the people. The sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Jesus does. It is actually efficacious. It does actually remove the guilt and sin of, of each of us. There was a very keen awareness, not just in the New Covenant, but even in the Old Testament, a very keen awareness that while we're doing all these sacrificing of animals and these sin and guilt offerings, that the effect that they're supposed to have is not actually happening. Like the Israelites like understood that all of these sacrifices, even though God had commanded them, were basically just symbolic. They were meant as a reminder to the Israelites about the reality of sin, right? And their, and their need for atonement and forgiveness. But they also understood side by side with that that these animal sacrifices didn't actually work. They didn't actually remove the sin. It was just meant to be a, a reminder of, of that reality, right? So Jesus obviously is the fulfillment of this because finally we have a sacrifice where blood is poured out and sins are actually forgiven. So this is the primary way Jesus fulfills these types of sacrifices. And you'll notice this aspect, of course, in the words that Jesus uses at the Last Supper, which, of course, the priest repeats at every Mass. This is the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus spoke those words at the Last Supper, one of the immediate images that would have come into the minds of the apostles was the priests in the temple pouring out the blood of these sin and guilt offerings in the hopes of forgiveness. When Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, that is what would have come to mind for the apostles. The third type of sacrifice that we find in the Old Covenant commanded by God is what is called the burnt offering. When it, this gets translated into Greek, the Greek term is holocaust. Holocaust means a sacrifice where the entire animal is burned up, the whole thing. There's nothing left over. It's a complete and total sacrifice. In some senses, of the five types of Old Covenant sacrifice, this is the most simple and most basic. By offering the entirety of an animal to God, and again, it's the same thing. It can be a bull, a sheep, a goat. Uh, in this case, if you were particularly poor with a burnt offering, you could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon, even. 
And so, so this, this animal is offered whole and entire to God, and it's, it's an act of recognition that God is Lord of, of the entirety of creation, that he is, has dominion over everything. There is no aspect of life on earth, and in particular the life of the one offering the burnt offering. There's nothing that is not under the Lord's dominion, right? It's an act of submission to God as sovereign, God as creator, God as king, right? So this is the burnt offering. And we see this fulfilled, obviously, in Jesus because on the cross, he held nothing back. He gave his whole self to his father. It was a complete and total holocaust of his life. He gave everything. And when we look at the Eucharist as the sacrament of that sacrifice, of that holocaust, we see that the Eucharist is the whole Christ. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. There's nothing missing from the Eucharist. It's the total Christ, you might say. It's a complete sacrifice. So in this way, the Eucharist also fulfills that type of Old Covenant sacrifice that is the, the burnt offering. And then finally, we can group together the last two types of Old Covenant sacrifice. And the header that we might give to them is sacrifices that express or deepen one's communion with God. Sacrifices that express or deepen one's relationship with God. The first of these kinds of sacrifices was called a cereal offering, sometimes also called a grain offering. And the way this would look is that you would have to bring wheat flour. If you're reading the Old Testament, most English translations say fine flour, and that's because wheat flour was considered to be the best kind of flour. So you would bring the best type of flour that you had, you'd bring wheat flour to the temple, and you could offer it as a sacrifice in two different ways. You could just offer it as loose flour that you pour a little oil on to kind of make it a little compact, and then half of it would be burned on the altar as an offering to God, and half would be eaten by the priests. Or you could actually bake it ahead of time into little unleavened cakes, unleavened bread, and you'd literally place this unleavened bread on the altar in the temple, or the priests would, and half of the, half of the cakes that you've made would be burned up to God and half would be eaten by the priests. So obviously you can tell how this is a prefigurement of the Eucharist. They're literally offering a sacrifice of unleavened bread. And this is, of course, exactly what Jesus uses at the Last Supper, is unleavened bread. It's what we still use in the Mass, of course. Finally, the last type of Old Covenant sacrifice that's fulfilled by our Lord is the most unique and the most significant when it comes to the Holy Eucharist. And that is what's known as the communion or peace offering. The communion or peace offering. So with this type of sacrifice, again, you would bring a bull, a sheep, a goat. It would be killed and you'd go through the, the whole sort of normal routine. The unique part though is that this time, not only do the priests partake of the sacrificial victim. Not only do the priests eat part of the meat, but also you yourself, as the one who brought the animal, you would partake of the meat of the sacrifice after it was completed. And it was a very celebratory and festive meal. 
It would, it would be eaten in a great spirit of joy. So the reason why an Israelite would bring a peace or a communion offering is as, number one, an act of thanksgiving to God for some blessing of his. And you want to keep that one in mind because that's going to be particularly important when it comes to the Eucharist and the Mass. So they would bring a communion or peace offering as an act of thanks. People would also make the sacrifice to fulfill a vow that they made to God or just as an act of devotion. But it would be this joyful sacrifice that was, again, meant to express or deepen one's communion uh, with God. Very, very celebratory. And so obviously we see how this is fulfilled in the Holy Eucharist because the Eucharist is the sacrifice of Jesus represented on the altar. And then all of us who are in a state of grace partake of that same victim, that same sacrifice that is offered in the Mass. So it's a, almost a perfect, the, the communion and peace offering is almost a perfect prefigurement of, of the Holy Eucharist and, and of the Mass. And you'll want to keep that one in mind, like I said, because uh, the Lord lays down uh, further specific requirements when a communion or peace offering is brought as an act of thanksgiving. And as we'll see, the Passover, the Passover sacrifice is that type of sacrifice. It is a communion or peace offering done with the motive of giving thanks to God. So next month I'll go much more in depth into the Old Covenant Passover sacrifice, which is the direct prefigurement, of course, of the New Covenant Passover sacrifice and the Eucharist. There are many other things that could be said in talking about Old Testament sacrifice that prefigured the Eucharist, you know, we could talk about all the special feast days in the Jewish calendar and the unique elements in those sacrifices. We could talk about the daily, the weekly, and the monthly rounds of sacrifice in the temple. Of all of those, I'll just draw your attention to one to show you yet another example of a foreshadowing or a type of the Eucharist, which is that from the time of the temple, Every day, God commanded that at the third hour of the day, around 9 a.m., and at the ninth hour of the day, around 3 p.m., there would be a single year-old unblemished male lamb that would be sacrificed as a burnt offering in the temple. So every day you had two lambs that would be sacrificed, one at 9 a.m. and one at 3 p.m. Now when we look at the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the unblemished lamb that actually takes away sins. When did he pick up his cross? 9 a.m. When was he sacrificed on the cross? When did he expire? 3 p.m. So at the very same moment that our Lord, as the true sacrificial lamb, took up his cross, there was a lamb being slaughtered in the temple as a prefigurement of what was happening that day in Jerusalem. And at 3 p.m., the moment he breathed his last breath and said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, in that very moment there was another lamb sacrificed in the temple not that far away as a prefigurement of the fulfillment of that which was happening outside the walls of Jerusalem. So there there are hundreds of these prefigurements and foreshadowings when we look at Old Covenant and New Covenant sacrifice. And I would say our reaction to all of this should really be one of amazement that God could organize so many different details in such a way that Jesus fulfills all of them. (laughs) 
that there are so many connections, so many foreshadowings and prefigurements that all, all line up. The sacrificial prefigurements is just one arena of this vast array of foreshadowings between the old covenant and the new. So we should really be amazed at God's attention to detail, if you will. Now, if you're the kind of person who always wants to walk away from a homily with something practical, you know, which I would say can be good, it can also be overblown. The faith isn't just about doing stuff, you know, the faith is about encountering God and the the faith is about, you know, forming our, our intellect and our knowledge of, you know, all sorts of things. But if you're that kind of person, you want something practical, I'll give you one thing that you can take away from this this conversation about Old Covenant, New Covenant sacrifice, which is that in the Old Testament, God was always very adamant that whether you brought an animal or whether you brought a grain offering, it was the best. It always had to be unblemished. It would have been a constant temptation if you were a shepherd and you had your flock and you had one who had a disease, another one who was missing an eye, you would want to offer those. You're like, they're, they're not worth as much. And God would tell the Israelites time and again, absolutely not. The animal must be unblemished. The grain that you bring must be the finest flour, wheat flour, not some, some other junk you may have in your cupboard. It has to be the best, right? And this is a reminder to us that, that the Lord asks the same of us now. At this point in our life, the sacrifices are interior but he wants those interior sacrifices to be giving him our best, right, throughout the day, to be giving him our best in our work, to be giving our spouse our best in our interactions with them, our children our best, our friends our best, to be just constantly wanting to love God as perfectly as we can in every moment, not half-heartedly, not begrudgingly, not with a complaining spirit, right? So if you want any sort of practical takeaway from this, that's what I would say. Uh, to offer, offer to the Lord throughout your day uh, a sacrifice that is truly unblemished, uh, that is done with your whole heart and, and for the right motives.